Well, good morning. It's really, really good to be with you. I want to thank Pastor Scott and the elders for the invitation to come back to this quaint Swedish village that we have grown to love so much. Uh, not because of the village, though it's nice, uh, but because of this wonderful church. Uh, we're so grateful for the many relationships that have blessed our families' lives in the years that we've had the privilege of ministering alongside of you. Uh, so grateful to see so many of you, and it's wonderful to see uh, new faces here. And uh, it is a treat to preach in this, in this beautiful building that the Lord has provided for the saints here. And the Walnut Battleship is definitely to be appreciated it is what it lacks in height, it makes up for in width, and that's actually going to be the title of my biography. So, uh, I don't even know what that means, but I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 5. Again, it's, it's a joy to be here and to see you all grateful for the opportunity to preach. Mark chapter 5 will be our text this morning, verses 1 through 20 of Mark 5. I'll begin by reading it to you, Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, 
sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the very word of the living God. The Bible is God's mouth, and through it, and by His Spirit, He speaks to us, and He instructs us. And so we thank God for this word from God. It's a word about power, isn't it? Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, reminds us of something that is evident throughout all the Gospels. Every evangelist seems to focus on this issue of power. You see, the thing with power is that people always respond to it. Albeit in different ways, people always respond to power. That's true of things we've grown very accustomed to, like electricity. To illuminate a building like this one, mankind has harnessed the power of electricity to the benefit of all of us who enjoy the great indoors. No longer having to burn candles or light fires, electricity has helped us in countless ways. Harnessing that power, capturing that power, utilizing that power, men have responded to the presence of that power. We see this as well in other elements of power in our world, climactic ones like weather. In Southern California, we don't have weather. It just doesn't exist there. But in other places, they have weather. Massive snowstorms or lightning storms rolling through captivate imagination, even inciting fear into people. Those great manifestations of what people call natural power are amazing, and people respond to them in differing ways. Some try to capture their beauty by way of art or photography. Others want to flee from those things. If you live in earthquake country or a place where wildfires can be rampant, people are very aware of those cataclysmic kind of powers, and they respond to those powers in differing ways buying insurance or trying to find a place that would ensure their stability and safety. People always respond to power in different ways. That's true societally as well. The way people use power and seek after power, whether you're a substitute teacher insisting on classroom obedience or a A police officer, authority, and power are something that can be wielded in very different ways, and how people respond to that power depends from person to person. Some uh, seek to honor and obey those powers, and others are prone to rebel against them. In the realm of politics, 
Sometimes we're the most suspicious of, of power. We wonder if power will be abused or if it will be used rightly in the hands of those who govern and rule. That's the thing about power is that people always respond to power and they respond differently. And that's what I find so captivating about Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. This chapter of Mark's gospel is one of a panoply of displays of the power of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all are very concerned to display to their readers, to their listeners, to potential disciples that you would understand that in the earthly life of Jesus, he had this extraordinary manifestation of God's power. It was something undeniable to those who saw him and walked with him. And it's something that these gospel writers desperately desire to display. This makes sense with how we understand the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, God is called uh, the Mighty One or Almighty, El Shaddai. And if God is all-powerful, then in His incarnation in Jesus Christ, He would certainly manifest and evidence the very power of God, and that's exactly what we see happen. Amazed at the greatness of His power, Mark, in the most staccato version of the Gospels, the one that moves with the most pace, so many of the other evangelists slow down their story repeatedly, but Mark is happy to give us a succinct presentation of the life and times of Jesus and show us his, his ministry and its main parts, skipping over the birth narrative and then moving straight into the wilderness with John the Baptist and then the temptation of Jesus, all reminding us that this was a very powerful man. From the very start of Mark's gospel, power is something that is, consumes his fast-flowing narrative. From Jesus' temptation, showing the greatness and the power of Jesus' fortitude and reliance on the Word of God and the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that he would look at these men in the face and call them by his own power and authority to leave behind their earthly concerns, leave behind their families and their vocations, and follow after him. All of it is a display of Jesus' This is extraordinary power. And then Jesus enters into the realm of the unseen, the spiritual world, cleansing a man with an unclean spirit, healing people of diseases and illnesses and sicknesses. And then as Jesus preaches, you see his power in his ministry of the word, his full confidence in the word of God as he announces a, a new thing happening in God's redemptive plan centered around himself. He contends with leprosy, a disease that had an extraordinary impact in the ancient world, and Jesus nearly vanquishes that disease from Palestine. He finds things that had never been cured before, from paralysis to uh, other kinds of sicknesses that doctors had no idea how to deal with them, and Jesus heals these people instantly by the power of God. 
as John Mark, who wasn't one of the original disciples, the author of Mark, he probably got his firsthand account from Peter. He was a, John Mark was a disciple of, of the disciples, a disciple of Peter. He rehearses these stories, summarizing them, showing them quickly about Jesus' authority and power. He's Lord over the Sabbath. He understands the purpose of spiritual practices like fasting. He causes a man with a withered hand to be brought back to full strength. And as the crowds swell and follow Jesus, and the apostles are commissioned and sent, Jesus teaches that the ultimate power is coming from God Himself, as evidenced in the first parable in Luke, the parable of the sower and the the soils, and He shows us the power of God's Word on a ready heart. And then we get to our section. Our section is part of a trilogy of stories It begins in chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. It's that famous account where Jesus calms the sea. The disciples were certain they were doomed at sea because of the massive, powerful storm that confronted them on the boat. And Jesus assured them that he had power to muzzle the sea and silence the storm, his power on display. And the disciples responded to that power. It says in Verse 41, they were filled of chapter 4, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? That's the first story in this trilogy. That The third is the story of an official named Jarius and his daughter. And in that story, one of the most tender stories in all of the Gospels, Jesus is healing people in the crowds, interrupted by that woman, and then he heals her as well. And by the time he can get to Jairus, his daughter, his precious daughter, has already died. But even that one invincible foe that man has faced. Death itself is shown to be subservient to the power of Jesus as Jesus takes this little dead child by the hand and wakes her up with those sweet words, Talitha kumi in Aramaic, a little girl, get up. And she does, responding to the power of Jesus. Our story's at the center of those stories. And it's at the the front end of this gospel, but it's moving so quickly to show the, the power of Jesus and to summarize his, his ministry and try to show how it is that, that people responded to the power of Jesus. And it exists for us this morning to remind us that Jesus still has great power. That the power of Jesus on display then, that disciples responded to in one way and his critics responded to in another way, is still an ever-present reality in this world and in this church and in your life. And so I want you to think about the power of Jesus as displayed in his interaction with this demoniac from Gerasene. And I want you to think about how you respond to the power of Jesus. It's always good to have a plan, so I'll give you mine. We'll do this in kind of three sections. I want to explain this story. Not every nook and cranny, but there's some things that warrant explanation. And it's always good to have a basis of understanding when you're studying the Bible. And so let's just walk through it with a a bit of an explanation, covering some of the most important parts. Second, I would like to talk to you about some necessary responses to this story. 
I think there's three ways that all of us ought to respond to Mark chapter 5. And then finally, I would like to connect this story to the greater story that Mark is telling. So that's the plan. It's good to have a plan. We'll explain the story. We'll talk about the necessary responses to this story. And then I'd like to try to connect it to a greater story. With that in mind and thinking about the power of Jesus and our response to it, let's try to understand what's happening here. Look at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, immediately. Mark's favorite word, he uses it repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark to drive along the action, to increase the tempo of his story. And like I told you a moment ago, the disciples are just coming off of a very difficult night. A night in which their fear of death and death at sea was eclipsed by a greater fear by realizing the rabbi that they were following had a greater power than that which they feared the most, death and death at sea. And so the disciples are shook at this point. Uh, their, Their nerves aren't right. Their response at the end of chapter four of greater fear shows us that they didn't know what they were dealing with here. The fact that their response to Jesus' manifestation of power over the storm is to fear him even more so, to be afraid of the power of Jesus, and then to land on the distant shore of the Gerasenes across on the other side of the lake is for them to be, in one sense, from the frying pan to the fire. This is not a return home for the disciples. This is a visit to an alien land, a foreign land. Gennesaret was a place that was entirely dominated by Greek-speaking people. It was a Hellenized place. The occupation of Rome, which was certainly a reality in Palestine and in Israel, was even more present here. These pagan people inhabited this land, and very few Jews were among them. It's why the region is called the Decapolis, a a Latin name for a a ten-cityed place, deca meaning ten, in in the last verse of of chapter five, or verse 20 of our section. And so this is that kind of a place, a place where the disciples coming from what is either very early in the morning after a night at sea or according to Alfred Edersheim, a a convert to Christianity, a Jewish scholar in his work, The Life and Times of the Messiah, he believes that it's still nighttime, adding to the harrowing nature of this scene. A frightening scene in a foreign place, an unclean place, a place that these Jewish men would not have felt by any means welcome or safe, coming off of a seasick night, coming off of the stunning power of Jesus that has caused them to be very afraid, they now enter into the country of the Gerasenes, unfamiliar pagan land. 
And before they can even think about where they are or what they're doing there, Jesus disembarks. And immediately upon him entering this place, he is affronted and assaulted by a very hostile welcoming party. In Matthew's account, there's two demon-possessed men, and that's not in contradiction with Mark's account. Mark, again, is the succinct one. He's trying to show us the prominent man, the featured man, the one whose life was impacted forever by Jesus in such a potent way. And so Mark features this one man, but Jesus comes onto the shore, and suddenly he's lunged at by this famous individual. And in uncharacteristic style, Mark slows his story down. The only other place Mark will slow his story down is in the passion narrative of the cross. And so this is a very significant story to Mark's purpose in telling the gospel, in summarizing the power of Jesus. And he involves some historical research he must have done from conversations with the disciples, and the the disciples must have had confirmations with the man after he's been moved from ruin to redemption. And so they talk to him, and they find out his story, and it's rehearsed for us here in some detail. He's the man from the tombs with an unclean spirit in summary, verse 2. He lived among the tombs. And then in a very interesting construction in in Greek, in verse 3, there's four different uses of the negative. Not a double negative, a quadruple negative. And it helps us see the kind of impact this crazed man had on his society. No one, not anyone could bind him, not anymore, not even with a chain. Piling up these negative words to describe to us the kind of condition this guy was in. He was a madman. And he had inflicted trouble on his society. And because of the danger that this man posed to the villagers in the surrounding area and to the children that might wander around where he inhabited, they tried to stop him and bind him with shackles and chains. But nothing was sufficient. He broke them all in pieces. This supernatural demonic strength, it's like something from a movie. Except it isn't. It's real. That line, no one had strength to subdue him in verse 4, is such a powerful foreshadowing of the one who will have strength to subdue him. And the pathos of the description of this thing is is intense. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and always cutting himself with stones. And so you're picturing this man, and he's a mess of a man. He's a raving lunatic. He's a danger to himself and to society. He's a shattered man with lacerations all over his body. Perhaps he's trying to cut these demons out of him, partially under his control, uh, partially under the demon's control. His life has been wrecked. His mind is confused. He's a tormented man. He's crying out in desperation. This poor man a danger to all around him, a stark, raving lunatic. This man is all kinds of trouble. 
He's a monster. He's a fiend. He's a brutal savage. A man possessed by the powers of hell. But please remember, he's a real man. They tried to run him out of society because he was still an imminent threat, but that's a reminder to us that he actually at one point was part of this society. And so as you picture this this raving madman, please try to imagine that there were those who once loved this man, that at one time he was an eight-year-old boy. He had a mother and a father, perhaps siblings, definitely friends, but something happened in this man's life that changed the course of his life forever. He had been possessed by the powers of hell, and he had become barbaric, and he could not be subjugated. He was cut off from society, this loathsome man, God-forsaken man, probably the object of scorn and derision by the villagers, some mocking him, some joking about his existence, living among the tombs. Don't picture a graveyard, picture tombs in the ancient world were hollowed out caves in the sides of rock walls and he probably threw the bones out of one of these tombs and that was his habitation and he wandered around and he groaned and he yelled and he caused trouble and he was bloody and scarred and a a frightening mess of a man. Dr. Luke and Matthew both tell us that he was completely naked, just a shattered man a danger to the society and to children, but a tragedy, a real person with a story. Something happened to this man that put him under the sway of the devil. And we don't know that part of the story, but we know where he is now and how pitiful this scene is. Described in such detail by Mark. In verse 7, we hear from those that reside within him, the demons say, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? This is such a frightening scene for the disciples. This Gentile dominated land, now this demon-possessed man who is the epitome of uncleanness. The book of Exodus and Leviticus both talk about the uncleanness of those who would be near a grave. The Mishnah, the rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament, goes further to say that someone is unclean if they've touched anything that a dead person touched, a bed, a house, whatever it is, any kind of objects also unclean, making others unclean. This deadness and death that surrounds this man, his lacerations, his living near this giant herd of pigs. This is a non-kosher scene. It's a frightening scene. And for him to say, what have you to do with me? Jesus, using the human name of Christ, the demons recognize him, and then giving him the title, Son of the Most High God. That's not a common title in the New Testament, Son of the Most High God. That's a Gentile way of talking about a deity. These demons are concerned because they realize who they are face to face with. And demons in the Bible have so much of a better understanding of reality than postmodern men at times. Because they say, I adjure you by God not to torment me. 
Because Jesus said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And in Matthew's account, he just uses a single word. He says, go, go. And I imagine that every time Jesus said go, another demon would leave. And the rest are negotiating. And Jesus would say, go. And one would go because they can do nothing but obey the voice and power of Jesus. And so now they're, they're speaking all together, asking Jesus to delay their judgment. They think it's not time. The, these demons understand not only who Jesus is, that he is the divine son of God, but also they understand the eschatology quite well because they know a time of judgment is coming, a time for their punishment and torment, and they wonder if it's come too early. And so they identify themselves as legion, legion. Remember, this is Roman-occupied territory, Gentile land. And there was legions of Roman soldiers all over. A legion of soldiers is 4,500 to 6,000 soldiers plus uh, 100 or so animals plus uh, many, many different support staff and troops. This is a massive war machine, a legion in the Roman Empire. And so appropriately, these demons call themselves legion. I don't think they're being mathematical. I don't think there's... 4,500 of them exactly or something like that. I think the idea is, is that they are like a legion. Yes, there are many of them, but like the Roman occupiers, they, they're saying, we own this man. We dominate this man. We are over him and, and we possess him and we've subjugated him and just as these surrounding countries are under the thumb of Rome. He is under our thumb. We are legion, for we are many. And then they begin to ask of Jesus. The word here is begged. And there's three requests strongly given, entreaties or beseechments, beggings that happen in this passage. And this is the first begging in verse 10. They beg him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Why do the demons want to stay in this area? I don't know. Pentecostals would say they know. Nobody knows. It doesn't say. There's something in them that wants to not be disembodied spirits. Who knows the reason for their demonic negotiation, but Jesus in his wisdom, grants their request, and they see the herd of pigs, another reinforcement of just how unclean this whole scene is, and they beg Jesus, they plead with Jesus, send us into the herd of pigs. And so Jesus grants them that request, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000, that's a lot of pig, a lot of bacon. And they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. And though I am in, in Kingsburg, I don't know how many of you came to church today knowing the market price of pigs, but I Googled it up for you because I wondered. And the reason that I wondered is, is commentators are real weird on this part. Bible scholars, they, they have a big issue with this. They either like to say, well, these were Jews and they were keeping pigs and they shouldn't have, so this is God's judgment, but that's not in this passage. And, I mean, 
There's some bad Jews in the time, but pig herding ones? It sounds excessive. And so what's going on here? The commentators say, why would Jesus cause such great economic destruction? How could he do this to the local economy? Or those who are a little bit more PETA, you know what I mean? They're, they're real hurt about this. Poor baby pigs. So I Googled it up. $3.50 a pound, market price of a pig. Average pig going to market, 250 pounds. There's 2,000 of them, $1.8 million. There's a lot of jamon. It's a lot. But I think that tells us something too, doesn't it? I think Jesus, by bringing judgment on these evil spirits through the medium of flying pigs, is teaching us that the deliverance of one soul is of far greater worth than any fortune. This is a soul of a man we're talking about here. An eternal soul who cares about the cost, who cares about the pigs, who cares about the livelihood. This is a man's soul. I mean, Jesus asked his disciples, those who would follow him and listen to him and, and try to go after him, he told them about the value of their soul. In the book of Matthew, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Is that how you think about the value of, of your soul, of the souls in this community, of the souls of those we seek to reach with world missions? At what price would we stop to reach a single soul? This is an easy transaction for Jesus. This man's soul worth far more than the herd of swine. And so snouts and tails over the cliff they go, smushed up pigs on the sea line along the shore, a disgusting scene, an unclean scene, a bloody scene. That causes the, the keepers of the pigs to take off and tell everyone what just happened. And this has to do with the societal impact of this, of this man, but it also has to do with with the devastation this brought to them and their livelihood. And so people come all around to see what's happening and, and they see, according to Matthew and Luke, this man now fully clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. And like the disciples who saw the manifestation of Jesus' power in the storm and then became more afraid of him than they were of the storm, these villagers, the surrounding people, the herdsmen come back to the scene and they see what happened. And rather than an expression of relief, someone finally subjugated this guy. He's no longer a problem and a danger to our families. His, his wrecked life has been restored. Instead of celebrating the power of Jesus, they fear the power of Jesus And they make the second beseeching request, the begging, verse 17. They began to beg Jesus, probably politely, please go away, sir. Begging Jesus to depart from their region. They see this man with a shattered life, with 
his bloody self sitting at the feet of Jesus, now fully clothed, in his right mind finally, and all they can think is, the man who did this, get him out of here. They want no part of the power of Christ. The one who restored this loathsome, God-forsaken man, the one who took this man from ruin to redemption, they want no part of him. And if that seems unusually cruel, if that seems so impossible to understand, you just have to think about your own testimony for a minute. Some of you get this perfectly because when you came to Jesus and your life was saved and your soul was made alive and you realized who you really were and what you had done and what you'd been forgiven from and how you were called to a new life and a new purpose, you went to your neighbors and friends and family and many of them responded in the same exact way. So you got to change life? Please get out of here. People always respond to power in differing ways and the power of Jesus isn't always openly embraced, is it? But Jesus grants their request. Verse 18, he gets into the boat. The man who'd been possessed with demons makes the third request, begs him that he might be with him To me, this is the only reasonable request on this page. Demons to the herd of pigs, I don't get it. But Jesus grants that request according to his will. The townspeople, Jesus, get out of here, go back to the other side of the lake. How is that a reasonable request to drive the Savior of mankind away? But Jesus gives them their hard heart's desire. But then this request by this repentant man, this saved man, this converted man to be a disciple. The word he uses here is to go with you. It's the same word in Mark chapter 3 verse 14 when all the apostles are called to follow Jesus. It says, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. This guy wants to get in the boat. I mean, throw Judas out of the boat. Put this guy in. He's great. There's room. But Jesus, after granting the request of the demons and granting the request of these hostile citizens, he denies this man's request to join him. You see, there wasn't room for a Gentile disciple. They were going back to Jerusalem on their way to face the cross. And going with Jesus wasn't God's plan for him. God had a better plan for him. And so on the spot, Jesus commissions this man, gives him a message, go and tell what the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he's had on you, and sends him back to his family, to his people, it says. And so he goes through the Decapolis talking about how much Jesus has done for him. A stunning story. Incredible the witness of the transformed man. He becomes the first apostle to the Gentiles going to 10 cities to tell them how Jesus changed his life. Behold the power of Jesus to transform a human soul. That's the explanation. How should we respond to this story? What's the appropriate response? response here. 
Well, the first one, I think, is to acknowledge his authority. This is how we ought to respond to a story like this one. And the first thing we need to do is acknowledge the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. This is different than the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus is his ability. The the authority of Jesus is his right. And authority is one of the great themes of Mark's gospel, one of the concerns of Mark's gospel. This is the reason Jesus can do the things he does with his power. It's what underlines all of it. He has a right to do this. He can command the devils because he is God of very God. And Jesus' authority needs to be acknowledged in this story because he did something that no one else could do. He subdued the unsubduable man. He delivered the man who everyone else had counted out as a loss. And he did this because he had God's authority. When Jesus speaks, he speaks on behalf of God. When Jesus acts, he acts on behalf of God. And what Jesus shows us in his authority and what Mark is so concerned to help us to see, this word exousia, all throughout Mark's gospel, it's occurred six times up to chapter five. The authority is the basis for his power. When Jesus acts, he acts with divine prerogative. Only Jesus' authority could bring this man into immediate subservience and submission to Jesus. Only the authority of Jesus would be strong enough and have enough warrant to bring this man to be seated as a disciple, that his words could calm a storm, raise a dead little girl, and transform this man's wrecked life shows us that Jesus is in charge, that he has the authority of God. To think that there are those who would call themselves Christians, but would not understand the need to obey Jesus is a very difficult thing to think about in light of a story like this. There's a lot of pressures on Christians, aren't there? On what we think about what's happening in society and how we respond to everyone else's competing claims of truth. And Christians are looked down a lot, looked down on a lot in our society. We don't do what the world does. We don't think like the world thinks. And friends, this is the reason. We have a different basis of authority We believe that it is our obligation to obey Jesus, the one who has all authority. To acknowledge his authority is to see the reason behind his power, and Jesus is still all-powerful. The ancient world had all kinds of problems with devils, especially in the New Testament era. Demons and diabolical oppression. You see it in the book of Acts. And they tried to deal with it on their own authorities. They had sorcery and complicated incantations and cauldrons of dog hair or whatever. All these ancient manuscripts have been found, especially around a place like Ephesus, where they talked about how to subdue evil spirit. But Jesus just says, go, and they go. For this to be 
real. It's to see the authority that Jesus has. He has this absolutely stunning authority that he is God and when he speaks, his word is final. His word is true. He has divine prerogative. He calls and disciples follow. He heals and the disease is vanquished and he casts out a devil never to return. He speaks on behalf of his father and I'm telling you today, he is still, Jesus is still in charge. His word and his works have the very authority of God. Exousia, authority, the basis for his power. So we need to acknowledge this authority. Acknowledge this authority. Because the one who rebuked the wind and muzzled the waves still is able because he still has the authority today. I love this authority. Preachers don't have authority. It's not the elders of the church and they have this impressive authority. All spiritual authority is delegated. You get that. I mean, any spiritual authority is, is on the basis of what the Bible says, not of someone's opinion or preferences. I mean, that's the nature of Christian freedom and liberty is we don't lord it over one another in the church. There's not some Christians more important than other Christians. But we all are underneath the authority of Jesus, the word of Jesus. And he's in charge of us. Jesus uses this word, or Mark uses this word authority to say in chapter 2, verse 5, it's the authority of Jesus by which he forgives sins. It's the authority of Jesus by which he accepts sinners. In chapter 2, verse 15, it's the authority of Jesus by which he calls tax collectors into fellowship. He exercises demons. He redefines the Sabbath. He lays an axe to the root of oral tradition. He cleanses the temple later in, in Mark 11 because it's not just a house. It's God's house and it's his house. And then at the end of the Gospel of Mark, around chapter 10, the Sanhedrin, these ruling authorities, these guys who think they're in charge of all the people in their spiritual lives, they ask Jesus a stunning question. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's cleansing the temple. How dare he do all this? And so the Sanhedrin looks at him and says, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And the answer is that Jesus is God. That's why he's in charge of you, teenager. It's why he's in charge of you, ma'am and sir. He made you in his likeness and image. And he has total authority over your life. Over every part of your life so that every part of your life, whether you eat or whether you drink, can be all done to the glory of God. He operates on the basis of God's prerogative. To be obedient to Jesus, to be a Christian, is to belong to King Jesus. And when he entered the shore of Gennesaret, he wasn't uncomfortable at all. The disciples were scared, not Jesus, because he owns every inch of this planet. It's all his, created by his word. He was not trespassing. Acknowledge his authority in your life. Second response 
Be awestruck by his power. Be awestruck by his power. If authority is his right, then power is his ability. And this is another key word in Mark up to this point in the story. It's the word dynatai or power. The first occurrence is in chapter 2, verse 7. He talks about who has the right to plunder a strong man's house, talking about the devil. That Jesus is going to demonstrate his power over all forces of evil. And the case before us of this naked man, this howling man, this cut man among the dead, ranting and violent, now is seated before Jesus, sitting down, clothed, speaking clearly. But you realize that the power of Jesus isn't on display just in the external there. Jesus finally got this guy to stop raving and put a t-shirt on whatever the ancient equivalent of a t-shirt was. That's, that's not what's amazing about this. It's not just the external transformation here. That's the outside. He did far more than put clothes on this man. He's El Shaddai. He's the Almighty One. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. And as it's seen in His Son, God, who delivered His people in the Old Testament, now transforms and delivers and redeems a man owned by the devil to become a follower of Jesus. That's not just an outward change. That's a complete transformation because of the power of Jesus. And that should remind us that we ought to be awestruck by His power to this very minute. Because if you have a Christian testimony, you too have been transformed by the power of Christ. That means that every enslavement can be broken. Every addiction can be overcome. Lust can be slayed. The power of darkness, our former way of life, can be overcome by a word from Jesus. That's not just outward change. That's complete transformation. That's why Colossians says he delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his son that he loves. The fear here, first the disciples in the storm and then the residents, is because they see Jesus' power to work inside of a person, in his creation, acknowledge his authority and be awestruck by his power. A third response is one we share with this man. It's to be aware of our debt. Aware of our debt. I love verse 19. Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man was aware that he owed his life to Jesus. And that word mercy, I mean, the word mercy, it's one of the most common words in the Bible. But strangely, it's not used in the Gospel of Mark, but three times, in just two stories. It's used here, and it's used in Mark 10, in the story of blind Bartimaeus. On his lips, as he says, have mercy on me, Jesus, son of David, and then repeats it for this, the third usage, son of David, have mercy on me. It's just strange that Mark would reserve this word so common, both Old and New Testament to only occur in these two pivotal moments in this, the gospel. And the first time is here, on the very lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, to describe the testimony on the words of the blind man, and as his eyes are opened, he describes Jesus. But now this man, this formerly demon-possessed man, not invited to come along, not coming to Jerusalem, staying home as a witness. 
still with all his scars, but a completely changed life. And Jesus tells him to go to the 10 cities, go to the Decapolis, go to his people and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has been merciful to you, how he's had mercy on you. We ought to see and feel this same weight of debt acknowledging our debt to the mercy of Christ. If your life's been transformed, if your sins have been forgiven, it is only on the basis, not of your good works, not of your merit, not that you deserve it, not that you're a good Christian person. The reason you are saved, if you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, is because ultimately of the mercy of God. He hasn't given us what we deserve. We have to feel the same weight and debt. And so Jesus describes this man's testimony in that word, mercy. Go and tell him. And so he goes to the first city and he tells them what the Lord did for him and how he had mercy on them. And he goes to the second city and he tells all those people there, you remember me, you heard about me. Let me tell you what the Lord did for me and how he had mercy on me. And he goes to the third city and he tells them who he was and they remember him and they see his scars and they remember his wrecked self that just dominated the the seashore there. And he tells them what the Lord did for him and how he had mercy on him and to the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth. All throughout this region, this man becomes this apostle commissioned and sent by Jesus to the Gentile world to show that Jesus has an expression of mercy that will not be constricted or confined simply to the covenant people of God in Israel, but will break out of those boundaries. And the apostles who go to the world and the missionaries who go to the world still are following in the footsteps of a scarred man who wreaked havoc on his town but was changed by Jesus because of the mercy of Jesus. The power of God in salvation is always an expression of mercy. We ought to go and tell what the Lord has done for us, how he's been merciful to us. Well, finally, let me connect this to a greater story. And this is just simply the gospel according to Mark. The storm, the demoniac, Jairus' daughter. It's a grand story, but it speeds up quite a bit after this, moving at a rapid pace from here to the cross at a distance. You see, the man from Nazareth had to get back on the boat and go back across because there was still work to do. He was steadfast and determined to go to the cross to be the sacrifice for sin, to be the atonement, the Lamb of God. And so the man from Nazareth was moving steadily toward the cross, ministering in a world marked by death and sin, a world under the wrath of God. He came and extended mercy to this lost world. And that's the story, the greater story that Mark is telling. This story of the demoniac connects to that story because Jesus is here to demonstrate his power, to show that he also has the power to drink the cup of God's wrath and to die as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus got back in the boat. That's why he was here to minister to a lost and dying world. Because in just a few chapters, there will be another man stripped 
of all his clothes, beaten to a bloody pulp with lacerations all over his back and body. He will be all cut up and it will be a very unclean scene, that dirty forsaken Roman cross. And he will be in the night yelling out incomprehensible things as he hangs on the cross. He will be seen and perceived as a defiled one, a dangerous one. He will be out side of the city, crucified on a cross by Romans, and his enemies will say, get him down before Sabbath. Put him in a tomb. That's where dead people go. He won't be among the tombs. He will be in a tomb. And that's the greater story. Jesus will be ostracized and cut off and put in a tomb so that God can vindicate all the claims and power of Jesus when he raises his son from the dead. God would show his power and his justice as he poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. The authority and power and mercy of Jesus in an act of judgment and a demonstration of his justice and love is not just to free one man from the power of the devil but to free many, many, many. And so Jesus himself will say in Mark chapter 10, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, many men and many women and many children and many nations will be delivered by the power of Jesus because of his authority. He speaks on behalf of God because of his power. He's fully God and fully man. And because we'll be commissioned to tell this world this greater story, that Jesus defeats the sin and Jesus defeats the devil, this little scene in Gennesaret is simply a prelude to make a way for a lost person to know that your life can be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friend, how will you respond to his power? How will you respond to it today? If you're not a Christian, I appeal to you, turn to Jesus even this morning. Follow him, believe on him, and be saved. Acknowledge his authority. Be awestruck by his power. And then aware of your debt, go and tell a lost world that Jesus can change their lives because he changed yours because of his mercy.